Good morning. Would you pray with me again? God, we come to you this morning and um, we, we try not to talk about stuff that doesn't matter. Uh, we always try to talk about stuff that matters um, from the pulpit or as your servants together as a church. But I feel like this morning what we're talking about is really important. And so, um, help me not to screw it up. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you are joining us, uh, just joining us, if you're visiting or if you've been away for a little bit, we are um, partway through a series where we're kind of riffing on or taking cues from John Ortberg's book, Eternity is Now in Session, exclamation point. And um, we're, it's, it's conceptual, and that's why I kind of prayed, please don't let me screw it up, because uh, uh, there's some heady bits to this, and we have to wrestle with some concepts. Um, and I have a favor to ask of somebody who's close. Hunter, you're there. I have a piece of paper on the copy machine. Could you grab it for me, please? Thanks. Already screwed it up. Um, but but let, me, let me start with an example. We're talking about kind of the core of the gospel, definitions of some things like that we, we've been really comfortable with for a long time, like what is eternal life and what is salvation. But we're going to wrestle with those a bit. Is it a chart? Okay, perfect, thanks. hope it's a whole chart. Oh, good, yeah, it is. Um, about... 14 or 15 years ago, I performed a wedding for a couple friends of mine, and some of you are looking at me thinking, you performed weddings when you were 12? And um, it's a good, there was a joke there to warm things up. Um, I wasn't 12, I was a little older than that, but it was one of the first weddings that I did, and so you're reading and you're very scripted and you're nervous, and uh, funerals, you can say almost anything and it goes okay. Weddings, it's a different matter. Lots of people really care what you say at weddings, and you can't screw it up. And I got to the line about the ring, you know, so I hold up the ring, and this ring is a perfect circle, you know, symbolizing eternity, so let your love for one another be everlasting. This ring is of gold, so let your love for one another be precious and pure, except that their, their rings were not made of gold, and I didn't know that until that moment. Their rings were made of tungsten carbide, which is like one of the hardest compounds known to humanity. So I got to that point and looked at my script and it said, you, this ring is made of gold, so let your love for one another be precious and pure, but I'm holding a tungsten carbide ring in my hand. So I said, so this ring is made of tungsten carbide, so let your love for one another be incredibly durable. Um, it's actually not a bad analogy for what we're after with this. Uh, last summer, I performed another wedding, and they, they used gold rings. And so you hold it up, and you talk about the gold and how the gold... Um, why do we use gold for rings, for weddings? It doesn't tarnish. Right. And this last summer, when I was doing the, the part about the, the rings... Um, I had a new line that I had come across about 
The gold in the rings, the more it passes through the fire, the purer it gets. Right? So tungsten, tungsten carbide ring, gold ring, doesn't matter. They're both valuable, and they both illustrate what we're talking about in terms of eternal life. It's durable. It doesn't tarnish. It it's, can't be defeated, right? That's kind of the idea of this. It will last and last and last. But it's not so much talking about um, a length of time. That's eternity. But eternal life, eternal is an adjective describing the kind of life. And the, the ring ceremonies get at it a bit. It's going to last. It's tough. It's boundless. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's overflowing with value. That's what we're getting at with this eternal concept. Um, confession. So every week I get to hear Kelly's sermons twice. And they're, they're great. But because I've heard it once already, sometimes my mind wanders a little bit the second time I'm hearing the sermon. <laughs> and so one of the things I do is open up my Bible, and look up some of the language behind what he's talking about. So last week I looked up, so we're talking about, anybody remember the terms last week? Zoe, Zoe right, great, Zoe, right? Life, as Kelly says, not bios, not just physical life, but life. And then not just life in our case, but Zoe Ionion, uh, Ionon, like eternal life. But the word for eternal, so I looked it up, right? It's, it's the, word, the same word we get eon from. But as Kelly was saying, it doesn't just describe this unending amount of time that happens after we die. It describes a quality of life. Um, it's boundless, it's full, it's overflowing with value, it doesn't have beginning or end, it endures, right? Just like the rings we were talking about. Is victorious over whatever assails it. It sounds a lot like the descriptions of agape love and chesed love as well. Enduring and boundless, right? These things, these are qualities of life that we have. So, I told you we'd have to wrestle with this a little heady at first. Um, I, I want to talk about kind of our old understanding, which was really a new understanding, and now our new understanding, which is really kind of the oldest understanding, the original understanding, what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about eternal life. Uh, we understand, we used to understand eternal life kind of as the reward. Uh, God saves us so we don't go to hell and then we get to go to heaven, which looks like, I had a Bible teacher who said, I have a private fishing hole already in heaven. I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to sit at my fishing hole and uh, just camp out there for eternity. Or you know, I don't think any of us subscribe to this, but the angels and their harps floating around on the clouds, right? It's an escape to something. So that's kind of the, the common view, heaven as a reward for being good or salvation from God's wrath. Versus this, eternal life as relationship. This is what John Ortberg's talking about, and I think it's what Jesus was talking about. Here's some differences. Uh, eternal life as a reward. Keyword, moral transaction. I do the right things, I believe the right stuff, I have a strong enough faith, or even uh, Jesus does the right stuff, and therefore I'm rewarded. 
or if I don't do those things, I'm punished. That's one understanding. Key word for the other is relational transformation. Through an imminent, through a close relationship, my life is transformed, constantly transformed to look more like the qualities of this ring, right? Enduring, precious, boundless, overflowing of value. In the old understanding, we're saved from something. What are we saved from? We're saved from hell. We're saved from the hardships of this life. In other words, the consequences of sin. In this other understanding, we're saved from, sure, the consequences of sin, yes, but also the power of sin over my life now. We're rescued. We're liberated. It's a difference. In our life group last week, we talked about the story of Zacchaeus. Here's Zacchaeus, a guy who hates himself because he's sold out. He's betrayed his own people. And so what does he have to enjoy but kind of carnal pleasures? Because he's given up. But Jesus says when he shows up at his house, today salvation has come to your house. And what Zacchaeus is saved from is his despair because of his enslavement to his own mistakes. Jesus sets him free And now Zacchaeus is free to open up with generosity and to live into God's will. That's salvation from the power of sin, not just the consequences. Get it? A bit different. What are we saved or rescued for? In the old system, we're saved for a perfect, painless existence in a faraway paradise forever and ever. It's kind of an escape from everything bad and painful. In the new understanding, which is really the oldest understanding, we are saved for the fullest possible existence now and forever. Life on the rock, as described at the end of Matthew uh, chapter 6, or Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6, life in Christ, life in God's will. When? Old system, it starts when I die. This life is basically a test and a chance for me to get the right answer worked out New understanding, it starts right now. It starts the moment you give your life to Christ and goes on. This life is a space of invitation to join God in Jesus empowered by His Spirit. Why? Old understanding, because I don't want to go to hell. Because I do want to go to heaven because this life is hard and I want something better. New understanding, because this is what we were made for. This is life according according to God's design. In other words, his will, his kingdom, for our benefit and his glory. That's a pretty different place to be in this life. And how? Old understanding, by Jesus dying in our place on the cross, but I have to believe the right set of beliefs or have a strong enough faith or in some people's understanding, do all the right stuff. Most of us probably don't subscribe to that, but we do kind of lean towards if I don't believe the right stuff or have a strong enough faith, I'm I'm on dicey ground. How in the new system, in the new understanding, by responding to God's invitation to be united with him, by opening up ourselves to his presence in and around us, by following Jesus in his character, mission, and will.
got a little dictionary of words that I want to redeem, but we're going to skip that. I want to talk about uh, where, where would you go in Scripture if you wanted to camp out on a place for a bit and wrestle with this? Let me suggest to you the entire second half of the book of John. First half is leading us to um, really kind of the climax, I think, is Lazarus' death and, and Jesus raising him from the dead because that's the, the ultimate faith question. Can Jesus overcome even death? So the first half of the book sets that up with this series of signs. Then we get to the second half of the book, which is all Jesus' progress towards his own death and resurrection. And he talks about the word of God, by which I don't mean scripture itself, but God's commands and his will and his kingdom. He talks about abiding in him and he talks about unity again and again and again and again. So, we're not going to read the whole second half of John right now, but you should. Go home and read it and think about these things, about the question of eternal life, salvation, and union. I am going to read some tidbits from this, though. So, open your Bibles, find John 12, if you can. And I got a side note, because I'm not reading from the New International Version. Um, often I do because that's the versions we have in here and I'll tell you why because they made an interpretive choice that I disagree with strongly they inserted a word inserted two words there's a verse that we'll get to where it says God says the father's commandment is eternal life and the new international version translators decided to say leads to eternal life and it's not the same thing His commandment is eternal life. That's the whole thing we're talking about. It's not a transaction that leads to eternal life. Eternal life is in living his commandments, is in living in his will. So, open to John chapter 12, and I'm just going to read some things that I have highlighted. We're going to jump pretty quick here. Verse uh, 12, verse 49. I want you to listen for a few things. Listen to the language of union and relationship. Okay, union and relationship. Listen for the language of commandment or word or will or obedience, which is the response to that. Listen to the language about location, where I am going, where I am, where I will be with you, where the advocate will be, location, And then listen to the language Jesus uses for his followers. Servant, friend, disciple. Okay? Union, location, commandment, uh, descriptions of his followers. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has has given himself, has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore I speak, just as the Father has told me. Chapter 13, we'll drop down to verse 12. After Jesus had washed their feet, he put on his robe and he returned to the table. He said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, you're right. For that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example so that you should do it as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, listen, 
If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Not future. Not you will be blessed if you do them. Verse 34, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Then the next paragraph, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Then in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 4, he picks up this language about where he's going. You know the place, you know the way to the place where I am going. Okay, think about our old understanding about uh, going away to heaven. Listen to this. You know, the, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. That's the place. The location is the Father. The way is Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, in a minute, I'm going to talk about transactional. It, it's not a transaction. It's not, uh, if you love me, you will prove it by keeping my commandments. The nature of loving me is living within my will, is what he's saying. Don't, don't prove your love to me by doing what I ask you to do. If you're living in my will, that is love. That's what love looks like, the love relationship with Christ. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. Presence with us, right? Verse 21, they who, have my, they who have my commandments, my will, and keep them are those who love me. Again, he's just describing the way it is. Those who love me will be loved by my Father. I will love them and reveal myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered them, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them. And I will come to them and make our home, and make, <laughs> I love this. Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and now location. We will come to them and make our home with them. It's not an escape to some other ethereal life. It's life in the presence of God with us. Chapter 15, abide in me, dwell in me, live in me, remain in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches, those who abide in me, and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. He's saying the same thing again and again in different ways. If we have this deep loving relationship, you will bear fruit. You will do my will. You will obey my commandments because that's what the nature of it is. It's not a transaction. It, there's an if statement, but the if is just about the the condition of our being, not an if-then. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, this is what it looks like. This is how you'll know. 
And now I, I put stars all over this so that I wouldn't miss it. Chap- verse 8, chapter 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things so that you, that <laughs> to you, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Fullness, abundance, completion, perfection, boundlessness are almost synonyms in all of this language. So remember the thing with the rings at the beginning? Their description is a value that's complete. It overflows the circle that the rings that we use to try to describe eternal. It's the same thing. It's complete. It's full. And now he's using this fullness language all over the place. Your joy will be complete. My peace I leave with you, he says, uh, actually, also in, in uh, chapter 14. The, complete, the completeness, the fullness of it. I think let's stop there with John. So I think what we're asking uh, ourselves is, how do we get away from a transactional? Can someone come up with a better word than transactional? I can't think of a better word than that. It really describes, someone whispered something, what? I heard it. Pardon? Exchange. Exchange is a good word, yeah. Exchange, kind of economic. If I do this, then God is bound to do this. If I pay this much, I'll get this much return. Our spiritual life is not like that. There is language of wages and reward, but that's language that's more in line with the natural law. If I jump up, I will fall down because that's how gravity is. If I sin, it will hurt me because God made us in a way that's better than that. So he says, don't sin because it hurts you or it hurts the people around you or it brings discredit to me. Don't do that. That's what sin is. If you live like I'm asking you to live, your life will be well because that's how I designed it. Right? That's not transactional. That's relational. It's transformational. Eternal life isn't a trophy given for doing, believing, or accepting the right stuff. It isn't an arbitrary reward that comes after the test. It's the life that radiates value, fullness, and endurance. Um, Ortberg's got a couple great illustrations. One's, uh, he, he, he describes it as the... The problem with transactional thinking is kind of, you know, what are the minimum entry requirements that we could do to get into heaven? And the illustration he gives is uh, airline miles, right? The airline miles rewards program don't care if you do the minimum entry requirements. That's all they ask. They don't care if you go above and beyond. If you do the minimum requirements, then you get the rewards. It's contractual. That's how it's set up. If you take that same attitude to the altar at your wedding, you're going to get a different response. If you ask your wife, honey, with this ring, I thee wed, and I'd just like to know 
what are the minimum requirements for us to stay married? It's, see, it's not the right question. It's the wrong question. What, what's the, what do I have to do? What's the bare minimum I have to do to be saved is a different question than how can we have a life together, Lord, that flourishes? That's the question, right? What's the bare minimum required for me to be a dad? I have to have kids. I have kids. That's different than me asking, what's, what do I need in, to have a great relationship with my kids, to be a good father? That's a different question completely, right? The other metaphor he gives, and this, is, this has come around so often now that you start to get suspicious of urban legend, but this language of centered sets and bound, bounded sets, we've, we've talked about this in our life group. Before we read this book, I'd just like to point out, I'm looking at my life group members, um, bounded sets are the example he gives good examples um, like cats and dogs you're either a cat or a dog and so we're going to make a bounded set all of the cats step inside the circle all the cats are allowed in all the dogs have to stay out that's a bounded set he uses triangles and circles as well triangles are triangles circles are circles the one doesn't become the other it's one or the other centered sets I like his example uh, is like balding. He said, you're at the center of the, of the set, balding is bald. But there's not an in and an out. When I was born, I was bald. Then I grew a bunch of hair. And now I have less hair than I had when I was 18. Some of you have less hair than I have. You're closer to the center than I am. Um, my daughter who's is she in this room, I think so, uh, took a long time to grow hair when she was little. So she started very close to the center, and then as her hair started to come in, she moved away from the center, right? This is centered sets and bounded sets. In Australia, uh, they do ranching two different ways. They keep the cattle in uh, and the predators out with barbed wire. That's a bounded set. That's one way of doing ranches. The other way they do it is by digging a well in the middle. And the thing that gives you life will draw you to the center. Hear where this is going? In Christ, in the Christian life, there are both. But I would love for us to focus more on the centered set, with Christ at the center and his will and his character. And then ask the question, where are we on the journey? Are we moving towards him or away from him? If we want to move towards him, how in the world do we know what that looks like? <clears throat> I asked my son, my youngest son, if I could talk about this, so I do this with permission. But um, I've got three kids, and their school experiences have been quite different. So I didn't ask the older two permission. Minority, Hijiri, sorry, I'm going to use you for a second. Um, how can I say this diplomatically? We probably wrestled more with intentions with the older two kids when they were younger, um, but have never, never once received a phone call from school regarding the older two kids. Right? I can't count on my hands the number of phone calls I've received from my third child, who 
I have no doubt about his good intentions. So kind of clean, hand, clean heart, dirty hands. That's kind of where we're going. Um, and right now, he's got a buddy at school who I would wish that is not his buddy for much longer. Because uh, his buddy struggles more with the, the heart issues as well. And so, um, so one of the things that came up not too long ago, I got a call from the teacher, and um, she's diabetic. And her breakfast... Uh, like apple turnover went missing. And for her, it's important. She's got to stay on a pretty rigid schedule for food. And she thought, oh, I must have misplaced it or whatever. Well, it turned out that this buddy of my son's saw it, thought that would be a delicious breakfast, and invited my son into the process, who at first said, no, because we've been talking about this. This isn't the first time this kind of thing has happened. So we've been talking about this, making good decisions, making good choices. And, and uh, my son says, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, then the friend opened the bag and tore it in half, and the smell of the pastry and the apples kind of wafted over to him, and temptation took over, and he gave in. So when I was a kid, we had this rule, and my kids have this rule. If you get in trouble at school, you get in trouble at home. I try to do some consistency there. And if things are going well at school, you get rewarded at home too. But listen to this, okay? That is not why I send my kids to school. I don't send them there to test their behavior so that they can come home and be rewarded or punished. That's what we're talking about. I want my son to make good choices at school because if he does, his life will be better. Right? This is living inside God's will. If you obey my commands, Jesus says, the Father's commandment is eternal life. It is this boundless, overflowing, good life that I offer to you, and it starts right now. Second thing about that story, how much different, in fact, it's not even a theoretical question because this happened on, on Thursday. On Thursday, I had volunteered to go to COP for the kids' ski trip. So now I'm at the school with my son. He was glad I was there. He was introducing me to all of his friends. And guess what? He was not tempted one time to steal an Apple turnover. And the difference was his dad sitting right next to him. And that's what Jesus is asking or offering us. He says, look, you're in this life. I want to show you how to do it well. And I'm sitting right next to you. And if we're open to that and attentive to that, then we can make better decisions. It's not this transactional battle that we have to try to get a reward or to escape a punishment. It's about living eternal life now. So final question, kind of how do we do that? How in the world would you know? I have three suggestions. Uh, one is we need to soak in God's love a lot more. Um, 
so that we're not scared of him showing up at school. That we know that his character and heart for us is our benefit and his glory. Rest in his love first. Soak in that spot. Second, pay attention. Um, my kids hear this language at home in different contexts, different ways, but they would, I bet, nod. And I say, pay attention. Pay attention more. We need to pay attention. Be intentional, intentional about making space and being quiet and watching for God's work in and around us. Pay attention. Um, the question isn't so much, remember the WWJD bracelets? Those are not bad. I think they should have two other bracelets. One should be WDJD, what did Jesus do? And WIJDN, right? What is Jesus doing now? Because the hypothetical question of what would Jesus do in this situation is dad at home and me trying to imagine what he would do if he was here with me. But through the Spirit, Christ is here with us right now. And it's not a matter of what he did back then and what he might do if he were in this situation. It is what is he doing right now. So paying attention and watching for that. And then third, uh, in Scripture to camp out on on the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke would not be bad places to start. And this is how I want to end. It's amazing to me that the parable at the end of both of those sermons, the collection of Jesus' teachings, is which parable? Right? Thanks. The wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the wise man's house stood firm. That's a description of eternal life. You want eternal life? You want to know what it looks like? Live in my will. You want to know what my will looks like? Here, I'll leave you a couple sermons that detail a whole lot of what the kingdom of God looks like and my will. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, and uh, thank you for the amazing invitation that we have to uh, be united with you, to abide in you, and to enjoy even much beyond what we can comprehend, what it means that you would abide in us, that you would make us your temple, your dwelling place. Um, even Jesus, as you are being the pathway to our dwelling place, which is the Father. Just a big paradigm shift for most of us, God, to, to get away from um, kind of an exchange idea about what spirituality is and really move into a space that understands enjoying, enjoying abundant life, not a life without suffering, but a life with deep meaning, a life that endures, a life that overflows with your love through a relationship with you. Um, Let us soak in your love. Let us make space to be more attentive. God, help us to see you uh, and let us live within your will. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.